Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Alad Nehrai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. All right, hello and welcome to HivriaCast, episode 39. I am so glad uh, we have a very special guest today, John Adam Ross, correct? I don't know why I don't ask you before we talk, but you know, we'll just we'll just do it now. <laughs> uh, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Thank God. It's good to good to have you. It's nice to be here. You look uh, much more exhausted than the last time I saw you. Yeah, well, I've been a little busy. <laughs> what have you been up to? So uh, I spent three years creating a national theater series of plays inspired by the book of Genesis, uh, pairing narratives from Genesis with the lived experiences of communities around the country. And uh, it's uh, a project of the Inheritance Project, which is a theater company that I co-created. And that theater company works with sacred texts uh, and puts people's lived experiences in conversation with those sacred texts. So the Covenant Foundation commissioned a national theater series inspired by Genesis. We did that over the past few years. And the 14th Street Y Theater Mm. approached us uh, a little over a year ago uh, and asked us about what it would be like for them to be the home for our work in New York. York. Mm. And uh, what that looked like in the end was a uh, 41 performances in 19 days festival of all five Genesis plays uh, that finishes this Saturday. And uh, the last three weeks of my life have been uh, the last five weeks of my life, the last three and a half years of my <laughs> life have been uh, just the biggest adventure that I never could have imagined. Wow. And I'm getting a massage on Monday. <laughs> wow. That's a good update. Good. Um, so what what inspired this? What inspired this particular show? I guess also, um, you know, in general, what inspired you to... I think especially because... Um, I'm always intrigued by why people decide to do Jewish themed stuff. You know, like I don't get it. Like sure. even though I do it, like I don't get it. You well, know? here's here's my perspective on that specific question. Um, more so than ever, sacred text is being wielded as a weapon of condemnation and judgment and derision, hmm. and. That is not my relationship with sacred text. That is not my relationship with uh, religion. And uh, sacred text doesn't have to be religious text. To clarify, we're about to do a project um, in Memphis uh, where the sacred text is going to be Brown v. Board of Education, right? And and I've oh, played wow. with sacred texts in theater where it's Dylan songs or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the sacred text could be the Bhagavad Gita or it could be the Constitution. But, um, you know, there is... Uh, it, I feel it's it's an important role to play to give people access to and ownership of the things they've inherited, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the stories and the narratives and the texts that have been passed down through the generations. And I think that's part of the role theater plays in the world uh, as an art form, mm-hmm. because theater began around the campfire with hunters and saying, don't go that way because there's snakes or do go that way because there's a stream. Mm. And that's me sharing an experience that I had. And those stories became more elaborate and more performative and, and, um, acquired 
style and uh, to accompany the substance. And that became theater, right? That was, that was just a primal need of humans to communicate their experiences to each other, both for the sake of survival, but also for the sake of emotional survival, right? It, myths, where do myths come from? Before the written word, myths were the stories that were passed down through the generations. Mm-hmm. The, the crow that wanted to get out of the trap and so took its beak and poked holes in the sky, in the blanket that was the sky. And that's what the stars are, the light that shines in from the holes in the blanket, right? That's just a myth that was created at some time by someone Hmm. to explain the world we live in or to give us an emotional truth to accompany literal truth. And uh, I, I'm interested in that. I'm really interested in that. So I don't think of it as a Jewish pursuit. I think of it as a humanistic pursuit. I happen to be Jewish, and so my perspective on the stories are Jewish, but one of the exciting things, and so this is the other reason. I mean, the, other, the real instinct of doing the work that we do comes from a recognition that most audiences only experience art when it's finished. And most artists only share their art when it's finished. And as an artist, I'm unsatisfied with that relationship. And so it was important to me to find a way to make art where a community of people Mm. felt access to and ownership of the process from the inception of the artistic process, not as witnesses, but as participants. So going to communities around the country and doing devised theater instead of traditional theater, traditional theater begins with a script typically written by a playwright in their pajamas, right? And then a producer (laughs) reads the script and, you know, buys the rights and, and casts it and mounts it and wins Tony Awards. Devised theater goes in the reverse order, right? right. Uh, devised theater, you end with a script. You start with a question, an idea that you want to explore with a specific group of people. Mm. And over the course of a period of time of exploration, you generate material. And then over another period of time, you shape that material. And then that becomes a honed and codified script at some point that gets rehearsed and performed. And so the impetus of doing is that is that done by the performer is like who is who's involved in that? It changes. Different companies have different models. You can get master's degrees in this stuff. It's a it's a it's a thing. Um, but uh, I can speak for us and the inheritance project. Our model is that. We generate as much material as possible with as many people as possible. And then we shape that material by taking it all back home and, uh, you know, thank you for all this clay. We're going to go turn it into a few things. And then we're going to come back and we're going to show you a few of the ideas that we've come up with for this clay. And we want you to help us shape the clay. Now that we've put it into some form, we want your feedback on that form and your vision and your eye on that form, because that clay came from your stories, came from your answers, your experiences, your answers to our questions, whatever. And then, uh, and then once we get all that feedback, we go back again and we, and we finish shaping it into something beautiful and, and, or, uh, you know, challenging or whatever the art at the end is, um, and sometimes we do that just us with our core team. Oftentimes we're working with collaborating artists in a community. Mm-hmm. In Austin, Texas, we were making a piece exploring Jacob wrestling the angel mm-hmm. in collaboration with the Aztlan Dance Company, which is a Hispanic dance company, the University of Texas wrestling team, the Austin Jewish <laughs> Repertory Theater, and me and Spandex getting my ass kicked. Right? <laughs> oh, so, right, yeah. You would, so, yeah. The, so that so awesome. piece... 
it's not something that I made in my room. It's something that we made in a room together. And um, that's the one where the, the image comes from, right? Like you in a wrestling. Yes, in a, yes, that's correct. Yeah, okay. Getting body slammed. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's good times. Um, living out my 11-year-old dreams. Um, wow. and, and that's one of the plays in the festival that we uh, brought from Texas. Uh, it's one of the cities from around the country that were part of that series of Genesis plays. And so, uh, and so, yeah, so when we're making art, everybody's engaged. You know, to go back to Judaism, uh, I do think it's it's... Curious is the wrong word, but significant that you can't touch the Torah. You have to hold a wand Mm -hmm. that is the connection between your hand and this text that we've inherited. And many people have internalized that separation. And the Torah becomes this thing that is separate and apart and untouchable. Mm -hmm. And... I like to swim in the mud. You know, I like to to jump into the ball pit and uh, I'll come up with a zillion other metaphors. <laughs> but I but that's that's me, right? Yeah. I'm I'm mischievous and so um, I wanna touch it. Mm-hmm. I wanna I wanna throw the yod away. I wanna throw the the interlocutor away and, and just be in it. Wow. It's interesting because it it kind of reminds me of of the idea that so, like the vast majority of of the way that we actually deal with Torah is the oral tradition, right? I mean, it's been codified to a certain extent, like in the you know with the Talmud and and, and all that. But like when before the Talmud was written, which was only written because of an emergency essentially of the Jewish people, like every so much of it was oral. So even when you were talking about like the cavemen and all these, I was the whole time I was just thinking about this, like how. You know, really, the Torah is something that we talk about, in a, or sh- at least should be something that we talk about and experience and delve in this. So it's so fascinating to think about theater as like a form of that. It's almost like a form of oral. It uh, is. Torah. It, it's a. It's totally a form of oral Torah. One of the challenges and ex- one of the you know privileges and the challenges of the work that we've been doing is that a lot of it has been interfaith, mm-hmm. and what we have come across is. Moments where the oral Torah come into conflict with the written Torah. So, for instance, in Charleston, South Carolina, we were making a a piece on the story of Rebecca Mm -hmm. and exploring the story of parental favoritism from the perspective of Charleston as a city and when does she play favorites among her children, black and white. And I was creating this play with Darian Doshan, who's an actor and poet and playwright here in New York. Mm -hmm. We spent a significant amount of time over nine months in Charleston. And during our open rehearsal phase, we um, would go into Jewish spaces and the, the, the community members would say to me, Oh, you're playing Jacob. And they'd point to Darian and say, he's playing Esau. They would just assume you because universally because, Jewish and, because yeah. I'm white and yeah. Jewish and, yeah. and I look like I am them. And Jacob's the hero. I don't know. We're in South Carolina in black spaces, we would walk in, and every time they would go to Darian and they would say, you're playing Esau? And they would point to me and say, he's playing Jacob, which surprised me. Mm. Because I would think that they would see the person that looks like them as the hero, and Jacob's the hero of the story. But in fact, for the Christian community, and the black Christian community specifically, 
Esau's the hero of the story. In fact, the week after the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church, many of the family members went to the courthouse and faced the shooter and forgave him. And many, after the fact, cited Esau in their forgiveness. Because in the Bible, Jacob's a thief and Esau's a forgiver. Right? Jacob fears that Esau is coming to kill him. And in that moment when they reunite, Esau forgives him. Of course, in the oral Torah, Esau bites Jacob's neck or tries to, <laughs> which turns into stone to prevent Esau from killing Jacob. Right? We have thousands of years of rabbinic spin maligning Esau and elevating Jacob in the same way that we have thousands of years of rabbinic spin maligning Vashti and elevating Esther in ways that don't necessarily reveal themselves in the pshat, in the, in, the, right. in the actual written text. And so it's been very interesting to, work, to be in communities right. where your interpretation of the story is different than my interpretation of the story. And, uh, and that's been a lot of fun to play with and a lot of fun to learn. Wow. That's pretty intense. It's like, yeah. as I, I imagine that's created tension also in moments, right? Like I can't imagine that it hasn't. Oh, sure. I mean, we, you know, uh, in Kansas City, we were exploring Sarah and Hagar and the actresses in Kansas City that we hired happened to be white and black. And we didn't cast them in role because we were messing with role. Mm. Uh, but in an open rehearsal in a black church, the pastor raised her hand and said, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm sorry, y'all cannot have that white girl playing Hagar. It must be the actress with the braids because that is the truth. Hagar was black. And then in the synagogue, an open rehearsal, a Jewish woman raised her hand and said, I'm really offended by the racist choice you made to cast a black (laughs) actress as the slave woman, Hagar. And so that conversation (laughs) is is intense. Yeah. And uh, and delightful. (laughs) You know, we're playing with it. And we've been asked, I mean, look, the plays that we make are not... You know, somebody, somebody asked me a question once, don't you want your plays to be fun and entertaining so that everybody who comes feels good at the end and wants to come back again? <laughs> yeah. And what, what I said to them is, I love Schindler's List. I'm really glad it exists as a piece of art. I don't want to see it again. Mm. I have no desire to see it again. I'm so glad I saw it. I'm grateful it exists. I'm grateful I saw it. And um, sometimes art has to be that. Yeah. It just sparked something in me. I was... Um... My wife recently, uh, I, I showed uh, This is America to my wife. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you, you know that. Yes, right? I have. Um, so I was I was just blown away by that. Just for anyone listening, this is a music video by Childish Gambino, and it's um, there's just some shocking elements to it, race-tinged, uh, to say the least, race-tinged. It's about race and, um, and, and many other things. And um, it's just one of the most powerful pieces of art I've probably seen in a long time. And it was really interesting. So I shared it with my wife and my wife is extremely sensitive to violence and, you know, these sorts of, uh, like even sneeze issues. Like she's just, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Cause actually it's very hard to like pick movies to go to and stuff. Cause she's, I, when we were first dating, I tried to take, I literally took her to a Harry Potter movie cause I was worried that, sure. about this issue and she, we had to leave the movie. Oh. Like that's how sensitive she is. So, oh. um, but she's less sensitive over time. But like, what was really interesting was I showed this to her cause I was like, you know what? I think she's going to get this. Like, I think she's going to understand. And I showed it to her and she was really, beyond moved by it and and then the next day i noticed on facebook she posted it and she said like i can't stop watching this this video and what was really interesting was also seeing the reactions that was seeing the people commenting like you know because there's some from people white from people responding being like i cannot imagine why you would see any value in this um 
you know, they're just seeing this thing that starts off weird and then this guy shoots a guy, you know, like, and, um, because there is that shock value to it, but the shock value is what is so powerful about it. And it's so interesting to kind of see her dialogue with them. You know, it's, it's, it's my, first off, I mean, I think Donald Glover is, um, um, one of the most exciting artists alive. I, I really do. Um, and, uh, uh, Everything about that video is 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 remarkable, uh, just stunning and challenging, and all the things. And uh, and parts of me wonder if it's for me, <laughs> right? Who who it's for, right? Right? You know, art. Um, when you're an artist and you make something, you can't control who consumes it, right. um, or how they're going to consume it. And I've anyway, I have a lot of thoughts about 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 him uh, and and that piece. But one of the interesting things related to what you just said is, um, I don't read reviews mm. of the art that I make, and the reason I don't read reviews of the art that I make, uh, I don't even encourage reviews. I, I told the 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 marketing team for the festival that reviews were less important to me than process stories because I'm, I'm more interested in the story of the process than I am in the evaluation of the product. I mean, for me, as far as I'm concerned, the process is the product, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're not selling the play. We're selling the nine months we spend in a community that leads to a performance that may happen once, right? But it's about the thousand people that are a part of this process over the course of time. But uh, what I learned early on about reviews is that it's more about that one person and their life and their experience and their prism and their lens on, on a piece of art. So, you know, um, there's going to be somebody who comes and finds one of the five plays to be the best play by far. And somebody else who comes and finds another play to be the best of the five plays so far. And the only difference is one person had a sister and one person didn't. Mm. Right. I mean, there's, right. I mean, it's just, there's, there's, um, and so even that moment they described between the, the, you know, when you first went to the black, uh, church yeah. and the, the Jewish space and just that that's so interesting see the bias like yeah the interesting biases or perspectives however you want to put it that came to that that's right and and then you start to think you start to peel away the one of the exciting things I think about the the this is America video is that if you look past the violence Right, Vi- every, every I mean, you've got the choir shooting. You've got right. There's violence all over the the video. Yeah. But if you look past the violence, there's also some like deep, basic things happening in that video. For instance, the fact that he's shirtless but isn't chiseled. Mm. Right. He's not this perfect specimen of a model body, yeah. and chooses to be shirtless for the duration of the video in a way that isn't, um, you know, Justin Bieber or Chris Brown saying, look how often I go to the gym, mm-hmm. right? Rather it's, I am a man. I want, I, you know, for me, it's, there is no armor hmm. or the armor's inside. I don't need, you know, the, my skin is my armor. I don't need a shirt on top of this or see my blackness or see my, my, you know, see my body in a way that isn't sexual at all, but is primal. And, and, um, the say the, the, a similar, moment resonated with me at the end of the video because the cars at the end of the video are are not shiny Cadillacs or BMWs 
um, or <clears throat> um, Teslas. It's, you know, like a, a Toyota Celica from 1994. Do you know what I mean? I mean, they're, they're you know, a Ford, you know, Taurus from the 80s, whatever it is. I don't know. But, but they're just American. Like, it's American. It's like old beat up cars. There's nothing shiny about them. And you kind of see it stripped. There's no veneer. Yeah, and there was like a woman sitting on one of them, you know, which is you know, the typical rap video, right? And, but what was interesting was apparent, I, I believe that the woman was an artist, like a well-known artist, like, and that's so, I don't know. Yeah, I love that. That And that's so interesting because I didn't think about that aspect of it when it came to the shirtless thing, which is, you know, why it's so cool to talk about such art with other people. But um, that's so interesting because I definitely noticed that with the the cars, like that, that such a clear play on pop art. That's right. That sort of thing. It was amazing. Yeah. And the opposite of shiny. I mean, I just right. love the opposite. Everything was that. Yeah. yeah, the opposite. Yeah. It's powerful. And yeah, so, so how did this all start? We were talking, because I was connecting <laughs> to your, something you said about your art, right? Which well, was, I think we were talking about the, right. the, the ways different audiences perceive the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. The, the church mm-hmm. synagogue story led to talking about your wife's perspective on right, exactly. <laughs> Childish and Gambino. And also, how, oh, right, but also we were talking about how it's, some art is uncomfortable and kind of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Schindler's getting List. people to embrace that level on, on, of uncomfortability. I think it's actually really important because it was interesting, like what happened in that comment thread, you know, was what, which I, I felt, um, when I was reading it was people like, I understood why they were turned off by it, but it was interesting because my wife had very clearly written there that this is about something very deep and important that we all like, I mean, not that everyone needs to watch this, but, but they're to at least acknowledge that, to at least acknowledge this is something important to people. Um, and maybe to a specific group of people that we need to start listening to more, that sort of thing. So it was, it was um, kind of hard, I think, for me to see that and see how people could be so dismissive uh, of something because of, like, you know, one moment in it or something like that. Because I think, but I, I, I guess, and I guess that's kind of what sparked what I was thinking when you brought up the experience where someone's like, why don't you just right. make an experience where someone make goes feel in good. feels good, right. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like showbiz versus art, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, right. Well, there's another thing. I and mean, we could have a whole conversation about commercial art and, and commercialism in art versus, you know, the, the motivations behind it. And one, one of the, the interesting things for me, I feel like I've been in graduate school for the last three and a half years as a playwright mm. and as a divisor and as an American <laughs> and as a Jew. Yeah. And... um one of the things that I've had to learn. So art costs money. Okay. Art costs money. That's just what it is. Artists need patrons. You can't do the work for free. It's real work. The work takes time. If you're going to do community engagement art the way we do, you have to be on the ground and on the ground means plane flights. And even if it's home hospitality, rental cars and per diems for food, because people have to eat and so on and so forth. And that doesn't even count space and designers and time for people's lives to be doing the work. And mm-hmm. so art costs money. And um, one of the things that was really important to us as we went around the country making these plays is I am fully aware that I am a cis straight white dude who got a grant mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. art. Right. I'm very, very, very you know, uh, 
fortunate in all the ways, and, and I'm an artist who got money. Artists don't get money. There's no, this doesn't happen to people. This happened to me. So the first thing I did was call um, my best friend, Chantal Pavageau, who is the artistic director of the Inheritance Project and, and um, is um, uh, uh, a Catholic Cajun from East Texas who is as opposite from me as possible and, um, and say, we got to do this together. This has to be us, not me. And... Um, the design and production team for the festivals at the 14th Street Y, associate director, set designers, you know, the sound, lighting, the stage management team, the production design, nobody's Jewish. Hmm. Nobody's Jewish. In fact, I'm the only cis, straight, white guy on the entire team. There are other people who are men or identify as men who are not white or not straight or not right. But I'm the only, I'm the only right. And, and that, and you know, that's, and so there's a really funny story about how, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but the, a week before we loaded into the theater, the, um, uh, Chantal was looking at a list of the set pieces that were coming in and uh, there was no desk on the list and there's supposed to be a desk. It's a centerpiece set piece in one of the plays and she emailed our production designer, not Jewish, and set designer, not Jewish, and said, um, where's the... Um, uh, and production manager, whatever, and said, so, so where's the desk? I didn't see the desk on the list. And they were like, what desk? And Chantal said, well, there's a desk. It's the centerpiece prop of this play. We've talked about it. It's got to have, you know, f- poles that come out and it's got to open. And the production manager emailed back and said, oh, the Mishkan? Oh, we have the Mishkan. <laughs> and these wow. are, none, none of these people are Jewish. That's Chantal's amazing. not Jewish. None of these people are Jewish. Wow. And so, so, um, uh, so anyway, I, that was a tangent, but, but, uh, well, actually, Curious. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Well, I just want to get back to the point of, yeah. of um, so one of the, I got this, this privilege to create this thing and I've been surrounding myself yeah. with, with community members and partners who are not like me to add perspective to the stories that we're telling. And the other thing that we've done is all the box office proceeds in every community goes to local artists and arts organizations mm-hmm. because we already got the grant. We already got the money to make the art, but you can't do free theater because nobody will come. It's true. People just won't come. They, have, <laughs> they won't come. They, if it's they won't. They, you, they have to. You have to charge for even if you're charging ten bucks. You got to charge, or nobody's going to come. So <laughs> there's a sweet spot of how little or much to charge. But we give all the money away. So when you buy a ticket, you're investing in your local community. And the same thing here with the festival uh, in New York. All the box office proceeds from the festival going to a new grant program for Jewish visual and performing artists in New York through LABA at the 14th Street Y uh, to apply for grants to make art with the requirement that they apply in collaboration with an artist of a different faith or race. Wow, that's very cool. So I just, in terms of the commercialism or in terms of the, you know, of art or art as entertainment versus art as um, something else, I don't know what to call that something else, but... So you're saying like you're almost, you're specifically going against that that aspect. No, right? we want the shows to be good. <laughs> want, well, no, I'm not saying not but, good, but I'm saying you're you're... You're not, it's not just about pleasing people, right? Like it's about... It's not about pleasing people and it's not about making money. It, right. it, we, we need to raise money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from the communities, from foundations, from donors and all that kind of stuff, just like any arts organization would need to do. Um, but uh, paying it forward is important and doing the things that we're doing, um, you know, we're, we're chasing... 
we're not chasing contract work. We're chasing questions that we want answered or questions that we want to ask. So when we consider projects, we've had 37 cities reach out inviting us to come and make work. Uh, we can't do 37 cities if we had 10 years. I mean, we'll get there eventually, but um, our capacity is we don't have, we can't do three or four cities at a time yet. And um, so we're choosing the cities based on what questions they're asking. Oh, wow. Well, you know, what questions are the communities asking? You know, Omaha reached out because they have a, a substantial Syrian refugee community, and we're going to be making a piece exploring the story of Exodus in Omaha uh, starting in the fall um, because th- they want to be a part of, the, ask, of figuring out how to solve the challenge of integrating this community while honoring the own traditions and customs that they're bringing into America, but also this interfaith community wanting to provide a home for them and wanting to integrate socially and, you know, whatever. So taking a look at this narrative of Exodus, uh, Norfolk reached out uh, because uh, the Norfolk Jewish community straddles Norfolk and Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach was founded in the 1960s by white people who didn't want to be in Norfolk anymore with black people. And so we're going to be exploring Exodus as a narrative of white flight and the legacy of white flight in Norfolk and Virginia Beach. Um, Memphis reached out about the, the schools being segregated. The schools in Memphis are more segregated now than they were in 1950. And um, uh, and so the sacred text there is going to be Brown v. Board of Education, right? So these are the questions that they're asking. And so we're, we're chasing opportunities to ask questions with our art and as artists. There are two aspects to what you do that I feel like touch on why, on like kind of the difference that I personally feel between art. And, you know, it's so easy to get into this um, highfalutin sort of arrogant way of talking about it, but I, I actually think it's almost the opposite uh, between art and, sh- like, showbiz and that sort of thing. Like, one is the focus on process. Like, I think that it's it's interesting to me. I think that anyone who moves forward in art enough that they're not the kind of artist who's essentially only, like, writing when they're inspired, like, these sorts of things, starts to understand, I think, that product is like you're describing like the the it's only the end it's like the le- it's the most shallow form of the art in a sense like in the sense that not not shallow like it is shallow but in the sense that it's there's so much more that led to that point that we need to like appreciate as artists. It just takes like, place in a bubble, right? In a vacuum, right? You don't right. see the Broadway show rehearsed. You only see the Broadway show perform. And exactly. your only interaction with the artists is an autograph at the stage door. Or maybe if you're lucky, a talk back sometimes. Right. But I know amazing, incredible people who work on Broadway in those shows right. and make incredible art. And there is great value to that art. Right. And I spent three hours yesterday at the Met. So like I, you know, just visiting my favorite paintings and also looking at the new William Eggleston exhibit, which, which everyone should go see, uh, the photography exhibit at the, at the Met right now, William Eggleston on the second floor is, is awesome. Um, I, I, I do not in any way feel negatively or judgmental or whatever towards the amazing art that's being made that is product-oriented art. I'm just doing a different kind of process. What I mean more is the the appreciation for the process. Like, I think, yes. I think that's, like, the, like, and I think that's kind of my point. We're, like, where, 
when someone is when when you're when you're when someone is creating something where their goal is to get people to come out just feeling just feeling positive like get getting only good good feedback etc cetera, etc cetera. like the obsession there is product yes that's right you know what i'm saying so like it's in a sense that's kind of the they're focused on the end result as opposed to the process leads us somewhere so you are showing that yeah but it's not not everyone shows that but but the point is that i i feel it seems to me like the importance of process leading to product is is so so important i think when it comes to that yeah and, and it's it's a it's a um it's, it's been a bit of an interesting sell to foundations and funders to understand that mm. what do you mean you're only performing once what do you mean there's only three shows what do you mean that you know you're spending you know tens of thousands of dollars and and you know nine ten months in a community and at the end you do one performance like what's the point the point wasn't the performance. The performance is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's the icing on the cake, but that's not what you, the, the, the work is the work, right? Mm-hmm. It's the time and the community engagement and development and relationships built over time in a community. Yeah. Uh, I have a meeting tomorrow morning with the artistic director of the Austin Jewish Repertory Theater and the artistic director of Aslan Dance Company in Austin, Texas. Both companies have existed for over 45 years. Neither company knew the other existed until we brought them together to collaborate on the Jacob Play in 2016. And they are both in New York to see the play as part of the festival and to plan a joint project for next season, right? And so that, you know... um, that's that's um i don't know exciting to me it's exciting to me now what is interesting is social media has democratized access it well it's incentivized traditional forms of art making to show their process i i spent last night I got home, you know, from the theater really late and i couldn't sleep and i ended up watching a 20 minute video about um Black Panther and the CGI mm-hmm. and, and breaking down the CGI effects in different scenes. Right. But it used to be they didn't want to show the magic, how the magic got made. They just wanted you to see the show and the movie in the theater. Um, there's an incredible video people can go look at online of, of uh, an actress named Kiala Settle mm-hmm. who was in The Greatest Showman, uh, the movie with Hugh Jackman. And there is a video online mm-hmm. of Kiala Settle in rehearsal rehearsing uh, the song that she ended up singing on the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. And she was, re- it was, she was rehearsing it. This is months before production began on the movie. This is in rehearsals for the movie. Mm-hmm. And they released it online. They released this video. And I thought the movie was great. But the video of Kiala Settle rehearsing the song, mm-hmm. learning and rehearsing the song, and doing it for the first time with the cast months before the movie got made is the most moving piece of art uh, I had seen, uh, in, in years, uh, just, just the, the, it is so, and that's just as witness. That's just seeing the process as a witness. Imagine being a part of the process. Imagine being in the room and being right. able to be a part of it. And that's one of the exciting things about the work that we're doing is we're, we're meeting all these people who, who thank us for the permission we're giving them to participate as collaborators. Yeah. That's really interesting. I was curious, uh, how you, or what, what's the reasoning behind 
like I get I, I get the idea of working with other communities. What I'm curious about is within your own company, like what is the logic of having uh, specifically like not like a, a big group of non-Jewish people be part of that process? Well, we don't have exclusive title and deed to these texts. Mm-hmm. So that's how you feel. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So, yeah. so, you know. So you're saying like they also have ownership over yes. this yes. aspect of our culture. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think so. And, that's and, really cool. and I, um, I mean, if anything, if I learned anything over the last three and a half years, it's that there is no one truth. Yeah. There is no one truth. And the people who come into the room certain of a thing are people who have cut themselves off from growth and from listening and from understanding. Um, we, uh, you know, I was, our first Exodus play we made in Harlem, working with formerly incarcerated New Yorkers in collaboration with the Jewish Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. And I did a session at the Jewish Theological Seminary one day with some young students, one of whom expressed skepticism that anyone who isn't Jewish would have anything of worth to bring to a conversation or an exploration about the story of Exodus. Because of Passover, we know it so well. It's our story more than anyone else's. We are the experts in this story. What are you going to learn from somebody else? And I had a, a, in a split second moment, I had a decision to make. Do I let that go or do I, you know, barf in that kid's face in front of all of his friends and, and teachers? And I decided to barf in his face. And I, <laughs> I you know, what I said in a, probably a less polite way than I'll phrase it now is that, you know, I said, number one, the moment you walk into a room thinking you have all the information is a moment you stop growing and stop learning. And number two, that someone whose ancestors were slaves a lot more recently than your ancestors were, were slaves would have zero insight to bring to bear on a narrative about oppression and slavery and freedom is, um, is, is a pretty absurd premise. And, um, and when we were in Austin, Texas, we uh, doing the debrief after the play there. A woman raised her hand, and the, you know the the cast was very diverse, uh, lots of different you know races, ethnicities, religions, everything. And an audience member raised her hand and said, "Excuse me, um, I'm uh, we're not Jewish. We're um, so she said, no, no, we're not white. It was a Jewish one. She raised her hand. She said, we're not white. We're Semitic. All right. <laughs> and my biggest regret in three and a half years is not barfing in her face. Um, I like that expression. Barfing. Yeah, I mean, I, I let it go, and I shouldn't have let it go. I should I should have pushed back and said, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but when you walk into a car dealership, and Eric here walks into a car dealership, you're getting a different deal than he is because you present as white, and you don't get to decide what others see in you. You can tell yourself you're Semitic all you want, even if you have numbers on your arm. If you're wearing a long sleeve shirt and you walk into a car dealership, you present as white. And the fact is, that is the line we as Jews stretch that makes us unique because Jews have become white. We are white in, in America, not in Europe, I would say, but in America, in a great deal, we are white. 
and uh, we are also Jewish, and therefore we know both worlds, mm-hmm. right? We, You're saying like white Jews. That's that's. A, yes, yeah. yes. I'm saying white Jews. I'm yeah. saying that the Jews that present as white, mostly mm-hmm. Ashkenazim, mm-hmm. mostly uh, you know the American. Um, I would say that Ashkenazic Jews in Europe don't necessarily present as white in the same way that in America they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know this. I don't think I'm allowed to curse on here. I don't know what the rules are, but it. but the, this <laughs> this asshole lawyer. Was better than I thought it would be. So, so this <laughs> the, this um, Schlossberg. Oh right, okay. So you're saying, oh wow, yeah. Now we're we're really uh, talking about trending topics. Love you it. know, the, yeah. the, like uh, I mean, Google the guy, people. It's <laughs> it's. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, it's basically like Madoff, you know, it's like an embarrassment to our people. I mean, this is a guy who, who is a Jew and is white and sees himself as white and perceives himself as white and he uses that, wields that whiteness in ways that are despicable. And he really um, does. He really wields it as yes, a weapon. Yes, like, that's know. right. In the same way that the Torah is wielded as a weapon mm. by many, right? In the same way that, um, you know, and it's not, by the way, this is not just Jews doing this, right? I'm from Memphis. I, I'm from the South, the, the Bible belt, right? Um, the, the Bible is wielded. The sacred texts are wielded by the religious right, by the, mm. um, you know, uh, and so... It's interesting. It reminds me of discussions around anti-Semitism because, you know, one of the hardest things in that discussion is that these days, especially, it very often feels like this very serious thing, anti-Semitism, a very important discussion is just as often used as like a, 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 a weapon to silence people to or to to cast one side as evil and the other side as good and, you know, it, like... One side is the anti-Semitic side. The other side is the non-anti-Semitic side. One side is allowing anti-Semitism, not saying anything, et cetera, et cetera. And actually what's interesting is that there's truth in that, but what's, it's almost like the truth of it is, without the other aspects of it, is wielded as, as this weapon. And that's where art is dangerous. And what mm-hmm. I mean to say is that that's interesting. the world is not black and white, mm-hmm. and art presents a world that is not black and white. And so many people need certainty. They need the black and white. They need the clear lines. They need to know one way or the other what a thing is so they can call it that. And then they can live in comfort knowing that that thing is that and this thing is this and never the twain shall meet. And art is messy. We play in the mud. And we have a play about Sarah and Hagar where sometimes the white actress is Hagar and sometimes the black actress is Hagar. And oh no, <laughs> you know, that's messy. And that's, that's why the person who raised their hand and said, Are you, don't you want to make art that's fun and entertaining and makes you feel good at the end? And our answer is no. Because the world doesn't make you feel good at the end. The world is messy, and we can pretend it's not and call a thing a thing, but it's not black and white. Nothing is black and white. And, um, you know, I, I tutor kids for their B'nai Mitzvah, okay? So I, I, I take on about one kid a year. I've been doing it for... I don't know, 15 years. It's not something that anyone does for money. It's something that you do because, you know, it's, it's something I enjoy doing. I meet with a kid a week, you know, once a week for nine months and then, you know, and, um, 
And we talk a lot about big questions versus hard questions, which I uh, owe deference to Rabbi Josh Fagelson, who taught me that. You know, a hard question is a question that only an expert can answer, and a big question is a question that only you can answer um, for yourself. And, and, um, uh, and one question that we always wrestle with is, is there such a thing as an absolute truth? And... Uh, we're not going to get into what I think about the answer to that question right now, but is there an absolute truth? I don't think there is one truth. I think multiple truths can exist, but I'm not a scientist. And so in some ways there are absolute truths um, in certain situations. You know, nobody has disproven uh, the theory of relativity as of yet. So what's interesting is that even underneath that, I mean, the more that we learn about like quantum mechanics and these sorts of things, the more even that is, is like, it's a level of truth that underneath it has a level of, of non-absolute truth that, that creates that absolute truth. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. um, and it's very, it reminds me so much of Kabbalah and, and these sorts of things where like underneath the certainty is this huge depth. Which also reminds me of art. <laughs> and right, and, well, and of one of the interesting things. So I'm I'm interested that you brought up the Kabbalah, which is just that you know I, I'm fascinated by the concept of of something that you're not supposed to study until you're 40 years old, mm-hmm. and the idea that you have to reach a certain level of maturity and 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 uh, wisdom before you can handle the fact that there is more than one truth, before you can handle the fact that there are layers. Um, I get why that construct is there, um, but I refute it. Oh, the forty-year-old. Yeah, I refute. I, 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 I think that um, it's interesting because I think Hasid, but part of the reason Hasidus came into existence, one of the many reasons, is that they were also refuting that. They were yeah. saying like, "This is something you should learn very young." Is that true? I didn't know that. That's not, great. not necessarily like in those words. Sure. But the the at least the idea of like Hasidus is essentially in many ways takes. Among many other, it takes many things and combines them. But one of the things it takes is Kabbalah and brings it into ev- everyday learning. Um, and and um, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think no, no, like no. this this idea that is is that it's both revolutionary and then and yet so true to to even tr- very traditional forms of Judaism. I think like even the oral Torah, oral Torah yes. really teaches that, that yes. you're learning this rabbi's truth and this rabbi's truth and, and that rabbi's two truth. Two rabbis, and, three opinions. Yeah. Right. I mean, literally. And in, well, two rabbis, nine opinions. But. Yeah. <laughs> Especially today. But I think like, yeah, it's, um, I think it's, I, I actually like, in my opinion, I think the people who wield that argument, like, not not necessarily just the forty year old thing, but just in general, the argument that Judaism in some way represents one truth that like f- flies against even the most orthodox quote unquote, quote unquote orthodox position. Like that's that's not what we believe. Like, right, I think I think you're right. The most and basic truth. In fact, that's why we don't proselytize because we don't think everybody's going to some hell if they don't convert to Judaism. We don't think that we, you know, that's not how we work. Um, that's one of the things I love about Judaism. Yeah, it's like true pluralism. Like yeah. we believe in this deeply, you believe in something else deeply, and there's like 
That's and we're good with that. Of, we're cool yeah. with that. Yeah. We're not, you know, there's a reason why the, you know, I tell my non-Jewish friends, there's a reason why the Chabad folks on the subway ask you if you're Jewish. And then if you say no, they leave you alone. <laughs> They're not trying to proselyte. They're not trying to get you to be Jewish. They don't think that you need to be Jewish in order to achieve transcendence or whatever. They're, they're out for something different. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's so funny. That's funny because I think it, what's ironic is that some people get offended almost that they're not getting proselytized to, right? Sure. <laughs> There's always a way of looking at that. But yeah, that's so true. I mean, I love that. Um, um, so I guess we're running out of time. But uh, if before you leave, if there's anything that you want to plug... Uh, plug. Uh, this is probably going to come out after the festival is over. So I yeah. imagine, which is great. Um, it's a Saturday, right? So it's like right yeah, after. We, yeah. In fact, the last <laughs> night of the festival is a one night only, um, Tikkun Leil Shavuot marathon of 6 PM to 4 AM of all five plays, wow. um, with panels and rabbis and all that's going to be a big, um, my, uh, what, what to plug? Uh, look, you can go on our website, inheritance.org. Uh, inheritance is intentionally misspelled. It's mm. inheritance, H-E-I. R. Mm. I think the word air is in there. But inheritance.org, there's just an I in between the E and the R. Um, and uh, you can read about our work and watch some videos of our open rehearsals are all online. So you can go and oh, look wow. at the process of the of the art making and how the community engages. There's open rehearsals on our website in a mosque, a church, a synagogue, many synagogues, uh, JCCs, schools. Um, and we also um, worked with uh, an educator named Molly Andron who curricularized our methodology. So our way of making art is now online as lesson plans that are freely available to educators and artists around the country who might be interested in um, applying our methodology to their classrooms or their work. And, uh, and we'll be coming to communities near you. You can reach out to us through the website. Um, uh, we have a lot of big city projects lined up, but there's also a lot of space for smaller projects that we can do. And, um, uh, and you know, uh, hopefully I'll, 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 uh, I'll see you around. <laughs> uh, how often are you going to be in New York? Uh, thank you, my wife, who asks me that question all the time. <laughs> she uh, told me to ask you that. Yeah, actually. Jennifer, it's good like that. Um, uh, I, for the past few years, have been out of New York about 200 nights a year uh, wow. doing this work. Um, it's, so you live in New York then? Yeah, yeah, right. I live in Harlem, yeah. Okay. But I, um, I've been in New York for almost 20 years now. But I... Uh, I, I think that the the system that we're setting up for the organization moving forward will allow me to be home a little bit more often, which is a good thing. Awesome. Well, I hope people get to see what you do. I'm sure that, I'm sure people will, but I hope some of the people listening, and I hope uh, you stay in touch. I mean, this is just incredible work you're doing. It's Thanks. Awesome. I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk childish Gambino with you whenever you want. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Let's do another episode. That's all we'll talk about. Awesome. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Hivriya Cast. I'm Aladna Harai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hivriya.com or facebook.com slash hivriyamag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. Kalya, Dar